Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Hi, Emily. Hi. How was your week? Oh, God, I literally always forget. I have no recollection. Was it was it good or bad, Noreen? It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but look, when we record this, I feel all right. The sun's shining. So I think, oh, yeah, no, I'm doing well. And actually, you're right. I have amnesia. I forgot that um, two hours ago I decided not to go to the gym because I was feeling a little bit dizzy. I've got a shadow headache today and slightly nauseous. Not bad, but I decided to rein it in a little bit. I had some horrific days there, yeah. Yeah, I had some really horrible migraines. Actually, outside of that, not too bad, not too prolonged. And I didn't, I don't, oh no, you're going to tell me otherwise. I was going to say I didn't have things like the shakes and all of that, but I think you that I recorded totally it did. the other day and I was a shaking mess. You were. Wasn't I? I could have given you a glass of milk and got milkshake by the end or butter. <laughs> you were super shaky. We could. That's a really good idea, though, to put that energy into something else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, I haven't had a great week. I love the fact that you have this amnesia. <laughs> It's so human, isn't it, to forget the bad bits and just keep, well, like forgetting keep the good bits. Forgetting about being in labour so that you go on and have more children. It's that, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Your body has this ability to override those things. I, th- I guess it's just survival, right? You know, it's how you cope with loss and ill health and yeah, trauma, death. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the one interesting. One thing that I'm doing at the moment this month is I'm doing a course in neurology in yoga. And I have to say, it's absolutely fascinating. So I'm studying the neurology of pain. And I'll tell you more once I've actually learned it. Yeah. And then we should get someone on who talks about yoga and ill health as well. Yeah, let's do that. That's a brilliant idea. And let's see the effects that other people have had, because we know that yoga has been one of the tools for me. I know that it hasn't cured me, but I think it's done a huge amount to help me, help me deal with my pain, help me process things and keep me moving, which is a fundamentally important thing. And it is contrary to what so many long COVID sufferers have been advised to do. The importance of actually being mobile, keeping moving. We've talked to so many different people, haven't we? We have. But just a caveat to all of that is that we we move when we can. And like today, you didn't go to the gym for your yoga because you're not feeling well and you know to pace I do I do very much know to pace and it's quite interesting when you do start listening to your body just on a very basic level I often can't do yoga because it will literally make me throw up so I don't do it on those days I am also we always say this super aware of how lucky I am to still be as mobile as I have been. But we don't know if that is also to do with the fact that I've continued with with the yoga that's kept me mobile, kept kept toxins draining or whatever. But I do know that it's not a possibility for some people. 
And you? How are you, my love? I'm not too bad. Have you been moving? I have had a few days off from doing my walking, which I have tried to keep up since the summer. Because mm. I do know that I feel worse in autumn, winter in general. And that the summers I feel really well. And part of that, I think, is the bad weather that we have here. Keeps you inside. Yeah. I've decided to, my poor son, force him to walk to school every day. Unless it's raining. And unfortunately, it rains rather a lot. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't get as much walking in as I can. But the sun is shining. So hopefully later today I could do a little walk. I haven't been walking the last few days because I've had this swelling down the right side of my back or inflammation. I don't know if it's visible swelling. I just feel like that side is swollen. And it's something that you've felt before and for quite a prolonged period, isn't it? Yeah, I've mentioned it before. And I don't know if I had a virus. I don't think I had a virus. I don't know why it's come back. And it's kind of more focused on my right side. It shifts from being a backache to being a pain. And I had a pain in my mid right quadrant. So for a few days, I thought it might be my liver. And then it shifts to my shoulders and then it moves around. And the fact that it moves around makes me less worried or the fact that I've had it before makes me less worried. But I've been self-medicating with colchicine the last two and a half days Mm. and it's significantly improved. Yeah, anti-inflammatory, isn't it? Have you sought professional medical advice? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here would be the thing, right? So I have a mysterious pain in my back, mostly located on the right side. I say it feels swollen. If you examined me, you probably wouldn't be able to see any swelling. I'd walk into the GP and I'd explain my symptoms. And it's not an obvious ailment, right? So I haven't strained my back. I'm still using the bathroom and peeing, so it's not my kidneys or whatever. So the doctor obviously then at that point would send me for a a scan, which I probably have to wait a few weeks, months for. (laughs) Exactly. And by that time, I would have sorted myself out by then. Yeah, and I think that is... A good little reflection of so many long COVID symptoms that come and don't necessarily have an explanation. Now, two years ago, when I first got this, I took myself off for an MRI of my back. I was like, oh, it feels like I have stiffness in my actual spine, like there's something in there. So I was really worried. And then there was nothing. And then after a few months, it went away. And then I got it again. And so I was less worried. And now I've got it again. Although... It could be something, but we just, people with long COVID just learn to get on with stuff. Yeah. Uh, But I think one of the frustrations is that feeling that there's no point in taking this ailment to a medical professional because at this point, it's almost as if we understand our illness better than medical professionals. Of course, the problem with that, and we've spoken of this before, is that some of these things that long COVID sufferers push aside as simply being another symptom of long COVID could actually be something else. I'm not saying that to worry you in this instance, but I think that is something that we need to be aware of and doctors need to be aware of, that we are living in the situation that we just put these things aside and get on with life. So there could be a tendency, especially as things go on, for us to overlook things that should actually be a warning. I agree. And if it was a new symptom, I would be seeking medical advice. Yeah. Right. 
this week. It's sad in a way, but we're revisiting people that we spoke to over two years ago. Mm. But we always love to talk to Professor Danny Altman. Yeah. Uh, he's a professor of immunology at Imperial College London. He's always such a joy, isn't he, to speak to? He is such a joy. Now, he has recently published a review paper, so a little similar to the PLRC paper, but obviously with a specific immunology bent in nature immunology that takes a look at all of the papers that have been published in that vein and uses his expertise to try and pull together what's cohesive, what what correlates and what might be less relevant. So we wanted to talk to him and go through some of the things that really stood out for him. So it's actually over two years since we last spoke to you. It was the summer of 2021. At that stage, you said that we were at the point of working out diagnosis and recognition, but we needed to work out what the hell we're going to do about it. Do you want to give us an overview of the stage that we have reached with long COVID? Yeah, very happily. So what's changed in the intervening period? Anybody following the story will know that there have been many thousands of publications that you can you can Google and look up, a fair amount of research funding spent and a fair number of smaller and larger long COVID cohorts followed and studied. If you can hear hesitation in my voice for all that work, why haven't we got further and why haven't we got the answer? So the way I depict the intervening two years is that there are an immense number of observations and an immense number of positive mechanisms on the table. And they go to all the things we've ever thought about or talked about, including immune dysregulation and Epstein-Barr virus reactivation and coagulopathies and autoimmunity and persistent virus. I guess what I'm thinking is that if you try and do it in a race in two years flat, you can publish a lot of papers and answer a lot of questions, and yet you still can't fast track the big answer that can make people better and get you through to um, even which drugs are we ready to put into the big randomized control trials, which is not quite there yet. So sorry, that sounds like an evasive answer, but it's kind of like a lot of work, but not the finishing line yet. You say you can't race to the finish, obviously, but long COVID is such a big burden Mm. that why can't we just try drugs and see if they work? So, One of the things that we spoke about in that um, big review we published for Nature Reviews and Immunology was the kind of progress towards trialing drugs. And I think the final table we include in the paper is a kind of screen grab from whenever it was that we were going to press of the 50 or 60 key trials out there. You know, without criticising anybody or any of them, many of them are quite small and they're a bit shot in the dark. I suppose the, the the drum that I've been banging over and over and over again, and I, I go to meetings on this all the time, is that if we're going to do it, we kind of need to do it properly and ask big questions and get big answers based on those hypotheses we've got on the table. And I feel like if we could do it for acute COVID um, in things like the recovery trial, which saved so many lives because we simply went from clever people trying to guess to actually doing proper evidence-based medicine and saying, yeah, but what actually for those people with their fatal pneumonias in ITU, what actually is it that would prevent them dying? And the field came up with the answers. 
and that changed everything. And we need the equivalent of that for long COVID, properly powered, properly hypothesis driven. And if everybody agrees it's a good thing, why is it so hard to get the money on the table and the funders and the ethics? It's just hard to rally the troops. Every meeting that I go to, every conference that I go to, I'm besieged by people from different drug companies who've got ideas for things they want to try. And these are plausible things, they are sensible things. And they say, we don't know what to do because we can't get it past the regulators. And then you say, well, why can't you get it past the regulators? And they say, because it's long COVID and we don't have consensus on diagnostic criteria and biomarkers and study endpoints. So there's always a kind of roadblock. And yet you really feel that with the will to do it, we actually know a lot of those things. There have been so many publications on biomarkers, for example. So... I think it wouldn't be fair to say we can't initiate big trials on long COVID because we don't know who to recruit into the trial or how to diagnose them, because we kind of do. When you say it needs to be properly powered, do you think, is it the government that is the biggest thing standing in the way of that? Because when the acute COVID had all of this activity surrounding it, investigating it, investigating vaccinations, it was a government-driven initiative, is one of the big problems that we are lacking that. So even if you have the backing of the pharmaceutical companies or certain medical experts or scientists, we don't have that power to put something nationwide and big in place. I think that's kind of true. So it sounds like I'm kind of passing the buck to policymakers or getting political and not staying in my lane. And I try and stay in my lane. And yet, I do think there's a kind of disconnect in long COVID, especially now, more than three years into it, isn't there? Because you do need to do big things like that. When we talk about long COVID on planet Earth, I think the the lower estimates are about 60 million and the upper estimates are about 400 million globally. And it's not a, a disease of the sort of wealthy, worried well in the UK or the US or whatever. It's a disease of six to ten percent of everybody on planet earth who's ever had COVID-19 no matter where they are if the stakes are that high why on earth can't we regain some of that sort of battle spirit and momentum and I think it does come into policy and politics and all the things that aren't my area of expertise you can see glimmers of it can't you in terms of what's going on in the UK at the moment in the kind of revelation from the COVID-19 inquiry because it's hard enough to get anything remotely sensible done if you've got an acute emergency and body bags piling up, et cetera, et cetera, and all the things that countries went through in um, early 2020. But supposing you turn around to your Department of Health and say, well, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about something that's going to lose you the next election. We're talking about the outlook for the next five or 10 or 20 years of, of, of chronic disease and the um, tens of billions it's going to cost your health service to have a whole new burden alongside cardiology and oncology and rheumatology how do you feel about that um the answer will be um don't call me i'll call you (laughs) (laughs) when it's so far down the line that obviously they're going to leave it to the next person in office why do you think as emily said in our last episode that the long covid clinics are being closed including yours i believe because i'm I'm at st mary's not not your personal one but your your imperial which is st mary's isn't it and i was told that they're being told to wrap up so i'm I'm not at the sort of sharp end of of that i find it as confusing as as you do because when i speak to 
people like Mel Heitman, who've been the epicenter of organising the care pathway for the UK. She's still got all of her fighting spirit and all of her will to do the job properly and thinks that the steps are in place to move forward over the coming years with the sort of learning points from the past few years and to keep delivering a long COVID service. She says it and she means it and she believes in it and she delivers it. Um, so how to square that with the view from the coalface where, as you say, you know, there are people with long COVID all over Britain who feel like they can't access the services, their services are being wound up, they're being triaged into counselling or occupational therapy or, or whatever it is, they, and they do feel like it's just not there anymore. Many of the people I speak to don't even know if they've been discharged from the list or they're still on the long COVID list or if there still is a clinic. We're in a slightly sorry state, yes. I was actually told by the clinic that they weren't actually supposed to see me again. Their sole purpose was only to assess people initially and then pass them back to the GP. And that is not necessarily, I think, conveyed. And it's also not necessarily the treatment that we need. I appreciate that's that's not necessarily your your <laughs> within your power, but it's just you speak to so many people. That's why we're interested in your opinion on all of these things. It's simply horrific. The picture I paint in the UK is, as you describe it, that we look at, as best we can, at things like the ONS data set and think that we're probably still on a plateau of 1.6 or 1.7 or 1.8 million people with long COVID. And we talk about things like 3% of the workforce out of action, which I'm not a politician, but if I was, I'd find very scary and very detrimental to my um, economic planning. We, we still have that thing. We, we know that people do get better and can get better. And I think the sort of stubbornness of that plateau of cases is one of the things we talk about in the paper, is to do with the fact that there are some people who never get better. There are some people who certainly are getting better, you know, who couldn't ride their bike and now can bike to work again and things, things like that. But meanwhile, we've lived through, what, nearly two years now of the sort of deluge of Omicron subvariant cases. And they've added a lot of long COVID caseload to the burden. So even though we tell ourselves that you've got to move on and nothing to see here and it's all over and we're all triple or quadruple vaccinated and we have a mild variant around and there's still new people getting long COVID. Yeah, one of the graphs in your paper just shows, even though there are high peaks and troughs of COVID infection, that the the graph line for long COVID patients is kind of a steady 2-3%. Yeah. It's interesting that it doesn't jump up when there's a huge amount of um, COVID infection in the country, but it remains at that steady kind of 3% line. Absolutely. It's just not going going away anytime fast. And I think, I think one of the things I spoke about last time was just the kind of warnings from the outlook from what we know about long SARS from 2003, 2004, that you don't want to be scaremongering because there's clearly different levels of severity and different timelines for recovery. But that from SARS-1, there are certainly people who aren't better more than 20 years later. Like I said, it's not to scaremonger, but it's just a kind of call to arms that it probably isn't acceptable for health services to say, well, readjust your disability, because to a lot of people that might mean giving up their jobs or giving up their mortgages. You list uh, in the paper all the potential triggers for long COVID, which you mentioned just now a few minutes ago. Is there one that you that stands out to you as the one that's maybe causing the most trouble or 
do you still think it's a combination or that it depends on the individual? So if I think about progress in the field in, in recent times, I, I think one of the things that's happened is that as the descriptions have got better and the kind of stratification has got better and, you know, we're all doing machine learning to try and make sense of all these very sort of disparate patterns of, of symptomology, we've certainly ceased, if we ever did, to think of it as one thing and think of it as an umbrella term for different things that might have different or overlapping mechanisms. But I think the answer to your question is one of the things that comes up in our discussions most often is surely that kind of low-hanging fruit here ought to be to think about whether there there is a large group of people who've got persistent virus perhaps in their gut that they've never really cleared. And surely if we could have a surefire way of finding those people, we could give them the antivirals of choice or we could monoclonal antibodies of choice and we could get rid of that reservoir of virus and we could make them better. And that's got to be a good direction to go. So that you may have seen there was a paper about five or six weeks ago of a little case series where people were treated with monoclonal antibody and were claimed to get completely better and be completely cured of their, their long COVID. That does seem to be the mechanism of choice right now. It does feel like some kind of viral persistence, or even if it's just debris in the body, seems to be the favourite among a lot of people that we speak to recently. Isn't that right, Emily? I know that your paper actually pulls in a lot of these studies and a lot of this information. Can you actually give us a little rundown of why you think specifically is it to do with viral persistence in the gut? So if I was trying to do the sort of um, dragon's den pitch for, for what I think is, is, is going on here, it's, the evidence is, is complex and it doesn't, doesn't all sort of pan out and work. So what would I say? The, the thing that makes me most excited about the idea of, of a persistent virus reservoir as a cause is actually some of the sort of smallest data in terms of data sets. So there's a paper that we talk about in the review out of Austria that I really love that says if you look at um, gut tissue, and obviously gut tissue is rather um, inaccessible and rather an invasive procedure, so by definition you're looking at a very specific subset of people there you're looking at the kind of people who've been referred by their GPs to a specialist gastroenterology unit for some kind of investigation in case they have IBD or Crohn's disease or, or you know, whatever. So, so, so they're an exceptional subset of people. But anyway, there's been an ethical reason to do endoscopy and, and gut biopsy. And they've had the ethics to take that tissue and look at it for the presence of SARS-CoV-2 virus. And when they find virus in the tissue, which they do in quite a lot of people, that marries up quite well with the presence of persistent long COVID symptoms. These are small studies on you know, dozens of people, not hundreds of people, but I really like that as a starting point. And are you talking about finding, are these studies talking about finding active virus, spike protein? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what, are, what are they showing? There's different readouts, yeah. There's sort of different levels of observation you, you can have, and different studies have different answers. You could either have histological staining of virus antigens, as in, you know, sort of virus protein there, and or you could have PCR of actually amplifiable virus present in the tissue, and or, and I think this one marries up less well, you could have stool samples, poo samples, where people are actually um, excreting virus that can be amplified by PCR, and I think that marries up rather poorly. And or you could have evidence of an ongoing 
reservoir driving antibody maturation and antibody development as a sort of another correlate of that. So there are papers that show all of those things to varying degrees marrying up with long COVID. So when you say amplified by PCR, does that mean virus that can replicate, so a live yeah. virus? In theory, yes. Yes, yes. Right. Just drawing back to the right at the beginning when we were talking about the fact that we, we're not racing towards trials, is the whole, you think, not the amount of study that's being done, because there are lots and lots and lots of studies being done, just the size of the studies are, are not big enough to justify then going further and saying, okay, we've identified this, we will now go and treat everybody with antivirals, for example. Do they have to be bigger, these trials? I think they have to be big, and I think you know, they just need to grapple with it on a big, you know, as I mentioned, the kind of um, stratification into different symptoms and different clusters and things. You know, there are people trying to do the right thing. Famously, there's the um, the Stimulate ICP trial out of um, University College Hospital. It's um, NIHR funded, and it's got big, properly powered arms. It's rather sort of first generation cautious. You get randomized into standard stroke, no treatment or antihistamines or anticoagulation or culture scene. So that's the kind of thing. But that was conceived and funded um, nearly three years ago. And we just need you know, more oomph, um, more stratification, more drugs, more things to look at. Those three things, yeah. antihistamines, anticoagulants, and culture scene, are all things that we have had on the horizon. Noreen and I have personally been given yeah, yeah. these things, and we still have long COVID. I would not say that any of those things have helped our healing at all. Some of them have provided symptomatic relief. So to still be trialing or still be looking at these things that I don't think to date have really showed evidence of treating the problem, would you not think that's quite short-sighted and also backwards-facing? Yeah, no, that's right. I suppose that was my kind of preamble and caveating, wasn't it? That that was a really well-conceived, well-meant, well-funded study put together some three years ago now with the best guesses at that time, which which kind of had to be conservative to get all the all the approvals. There's no shortage of long COVID sufferers in the world. One could recruit into trials if you were to say, well, actually, what I'd like to look at is 5,000 with brain fog and 5,000 with post-exertional fatigue and 5,000 with gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, there wouldn't be a shortage of them in the world to recruit into proper trials if you wanted to do it. And then you could look at your monoclonal antibodies and your antivirals and perhaps some slightly more aggressive anticoagulation and on and on and on. You know, there's other things you could look at. But big means big money, right? I mentioned the battle spirit that we had at the start of the pandemic. You need to knock heads together in terms of money and trial design and regulatory approval and just get all people around the table and say, this is worth doing. And, you know, many of us are trying so, so hard to do that. It's, it's frustrating to um, know all this stuff and publish all these papers and not be able to do anything about it. So can we drill down into you as an immunologist in terms of what you've looked at, all of the papers that you have reviewed? You talk about the potentially being a, an inadequate initial immune response in long COVID sufferers, which could then lead to the viral persistence theory. But what are you seeing that is some kind of confirmation data in terms of our T cell responses or in terms of our immune responses? Yeah, so we, we talk about it and I talk about it as an immunological disease. 
doing immunology research is really complicated and there's, you know, all those readouts and all, all the people who came to see us for, for Wilco and give blood and things contributed to, to all those readouts. And Such as Noreen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was me. I came. But when we kind of get together to talk about, the, present the data to each other, it's quite complex and quite nuanced to give the big answer. So there's some signal in there for things like Epstein-Barr virus and herpes virus reactivation. I don't think there's consensus about there. There are some people who are very passionate about the idea that perhaps persistent virus has driven a state of, of some kind of chronic T-cell activation or maybe even T-cell exhaustion. So T-cell exhaustion, perhaps it's worth sort of annotating, is a thing that's sort of beloved of immunologists for the last um, 15 or 20 years. And, and it comes out of studying either chronic virus infections or chronic antigenic stimulation in tumours and saying that after being activated very, very persistently, T-cells begin to go into a kind of program that down-regulates their function and makes them, makes them, hard, makes them harder to stimulate. And I think between us in the field, we're, we're very, very divided on whether that's a thing in long COVID or not. In our lab, in the, in the Wilco study, we don't really see um, a big signal for immune exhaustion. And because it's such a bone of contention now, we're, we're looking harder and harder and harder at it to see if it's there and what it could correlate with. We're not big fans of that. We do see um, dysregulated immunity. So obviously the immune response is a very diverse collection of different programs, most explicitly at its crudest, the kind of allergic type programs that mammals have evolved for um, sloughing out gut parasites that also um, give you things like allergies and asthmas and asthma and things on the one hand, or the kind of immunity that you need for getting TB or influenza out of your lungs. So it's a very kind of divergent programs. So when we look in long COVID, we certainly do see disruption in immune programs where we can tell the difference between people with long COVID and people who, who made a full and speedy recovery. So there's definitely that going on. So is there a difference between exhaustion and a decline in certain T cells? Tell me how, how you're using the word decline, as in lower numbers or... Lower numbers. So, for example, I've had my T cell counts looked at, all my T cell subsets looked at for the last three years. And I've had a steady decline in CD4, CD8. And uh, so low now that the immunologist I was seeing suggested I should have a HIV test. And I had it, and I don't have HIV, but it was low enough to trigger that test. <laughs> so I'm wondering if there's a difference between... Sure. So you're not the first person that I've heard say things like that. All I can say is that when we look at our data en masse, and one of the things I'm now trying to get people to do every lab meeting is to recite a series of statements. Are CD4 numbers reduced? Are CD8 numbers reduced? Are regulatory T cells reduced? Is IgG reduced? Tell me what you believe from the um, statistics of what we've looked at. And I don't think, sort of in total, en masse, I do believe that T cells are in decline. I clearly don't believe that T cells are, are exhausted. To me, it's more subtle than that. It's a kind of programmatic change rather than a quantitative change. So what would cause T-cells to decline or CD4 cells? It's difficult, isn't it? Because obviously we've got an awful lot of CD4 cells in us and they're turning over and dividing all the time. So again, you'd have to say there's some sort of programmatic difference where they're being 
less stimulated or less activated or all of the kind of the cytokines and growth factors that, that keep them going, um, you'd have to say there's less of them around or something, wouldn't you? And what might cause that? There's, it sounds like I'm being, being unhelpful, but you know, when I say it's sort, of, it's sort of complex, there's more and more publications out there. I have a publication across my desk probably twice a day from different journals for me to review. And these are labs somewhere in the world who've taken one of the many different types of white blood cells and they've said that monocytes are different or CD4 cells are different or macrophages are different or dendritic cells are different. And so there are so many different scattergun observations out there. And I think that makes it challenging to put it all together, which is, I guess what we try to do in that um, nature of using immunology piece to put it together and say, yeah, but when you kind of try and synthesize all that, how can we say something intelligent about what's going on and what we could trial? You say in the review that we are some way off mechanistic consensus that might feed into therapeutic strategies. But is there anything that you can say there is evidence to suggest that that, that there is uh, something that's across the board in terms of the immunological markers or even the hormones and things that all play into the into the immune system? Is there any anything that has consensus? If you said, well, you're whinging about how there aren't trials, there aren't big enough trials, and there isn't enough money for trials, put your money where your mouth is to write down the list of me now of what you'd put into a trial, and you know, we'll, fun- we'll, we'll put up the money, we'll fund it for you. And that would kind of call my bluff, wouldn't it? So we've only kind of done the tip of the iceberg in terms of antivirals, which ought to work. We've only done the tip of the iceberg in terms of monoclonals, which ought to work. We've never looked at modulating endogenous herpes viruses like Epstein-Barr virus with any antivirals. Anticoagulation is difficult, isn't it? Because we're scared of it. So some people in the world I know are treating it very aggressively and sometimes claim good results. And yet, in terms of of caution, some of the protocols that are being suggested, if you were in a stroke clinic or something and you were suggesting it for somebody's granny, there'd be real sort of eyebrows raised. You're not going to kill her with a bleed. So, so all I'm saying is we do need to be a little bit cautious in terms of how gung-ho we are about all this stuff. But I think, aside from being an academic professor equivocating, I think, I think one could put some ideas down on the table and move things along a bit. But it's, it's, um, it's difficult. As you say, you call it an immunological disease. Uh, so does that mean that the, all the treatments need to be focused on our immune system? Well... Because I'm an immunologist, you know, I, I look at the world through that window. But um, as I, you know, as I was telling you, it does, it does interact with everything else, doesn't it? One of my favourite publications of recent months was that one in um, in Cell from the group at um, at UPenn, where they do that enormous kind of metabolomics analysis and say the thing that's common to the long COVID cohorts is a real deficiency in serotonin. And then they build up a really magnum opus study through human studies and mouse models where they track that back in the end to a pathway that would implicate um, persistent virus in the gut, driving activation of members of the type 1 interferon pathway, driving impaired tryptophan uptake from diet, driving serotonin deficiency, driving um, vagal nerve dysfunction, driving neurocognitive symptoms. And so I, I see that as a really glorious paper in terms of showing a way ahead. 
It's thorough, isn't it? It shows the full route. It doesn't leave things... It's lovely. It's, it's, cool. it's really good science. I know that some people in the long cave community have been very irritated by scientists talking about it, saying, so what are you saying? Are you saying that we're just depressed and need, need to take SSRIs or tryptophan supplements? And I think that's not necessarily what we or, or the authors are saying. We're just saying, here's a pathway that's really, really worth looking at in terms of therapeutics. Yeah, and that's the end result rather than necessarily what you need to do or the point at which you need to treat. I found it was particularly interesting because headaches are such a big symptom for me and migraine headaches, one of the biggest implicators is is serotonin. Yeah, we we are trying to get them to come and explain the, the science on the show. Headaches and things to do with the serotonin pathway nobody should take that to mean that people are saying it's in your head or it's psychological or it's just a headache or anything. What are you know, neuropathological symptoms? There's immune effector molecules in your brain. It's similar, is not, to the ending up with microclos. It's the downstream effects of what the virus has done. That's right. Their pathway also accounts for or has the potential to, to account for um, coagulation differences, which they show in the paper. Ticks a lot of boxes. And the the treatment is fairly cheap if you just need to try and increase your serotonin. I don't know how it'll play out. So, you know, I certainly wasn't seeking to trivialise it and say there's easy answers. But it does just, you know, there there probably are answers based, you know, based on that hypothesis. Well, that's exciting. It's a really, really amazing paper. Yeah. Is there anyone else or any other groups at the moment that are really standing out for you in terms of moving the science forward? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of forgetting the first author, but we were talking about what's the sort of evidence base for persistent uncleared virus. And there's that group out of UCSF. Yeah, do you mean Michael Peluso, Tim Heinrich? Is- yes, and Steve Deeks, yeah, yeah. So they do that sort of modified PET imaging protocol, don't they, where they show activated T-cells hanging around and going to the gut and have a really in vivo ongoing signal for, for the persistence thing, that's definitely part of the evidence base. And I think their group has been really interesting and doing some quite novel things that I've really liked. They've also got the, I think, longest running study because I think it was the 19th of April 2020 or something. Yeah, they yeah, started yeah. enrolling people. We're big fans of that UCSF too. Well, they've also got this trial going on where they're trying to treat people with monoclonal antibodies. Yeah, for these immunology and immunopathology trials and things, on the one hand, you can do what I'm doing and say, well, you know, we need more evidence, and more publications and more review articles and things. Or you can say, well, the treatment itself could be sort of diagnostic and could lead the way to the mechanism. Who cares what the evidence shows? Let's treat a thousand people with monoclonal antibodies. And if they get better, that was the thing. There's an argument for that. It's one of the big problems with the monoclonals, working out how to identify which monoclonal antibody is required because of the number of strains and the variations and permutations of it. Yeah, I agree with that. The field of monoclonal antibody therapy slowed down a little bit as we came out of the acute phase of the pandemic. And yet there's probably a publication a week about somebody isolating a really amazing super-duper monoclonal that's very cross-neutralizing across different variants. Wow, so there is something that we could use for multiple. Oh, God, yes, 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 yes. So it wouldn't always be necessary to know, is this a Delta person or an XBB person? Nowadays, you could probably get away with not knowing that. Because they did say the early monoclonals wouldn't work now. Yeah, so all the ones we fell in love with at the the beginning were a much earlier generation. But now there are so many cross-neutralising ones. 
not all of them in clinical use, but they could be. Again, we get back to the question about why are we not able to access this? And even the very simple drug like Paxlovid, which is available and running out of date, and it's just not offered, it's not available, we can't access it. I know, I know. I find that whole thing quite ridiculous. I don't know what the thinking is behind that. I wish I could illuminate. I live in sort of optimistic hope that if I go to enough workshops with the great and the good and all the important people, that um, somehow I'll bend their ear and we'll make some progress. <laughs> I mean, it does seem silly. Well, we have all these stockpile of drugs, so that's just no, it, is running out of date. I mean, they won't give it to people. I know. The same with the monoclonal antibodies as well, isn't it? We received something the other day. It's one of the second generation of monoclonals that was developed that is the government here holds and is not giving to people to trial. And the thing with long COVID patients is that most of us would go and trial this stuff. We would take a chance and have an infusion of a, a monoclonal antibody on the off chance that it might improve us. I know. Can I ask you, what are your current views on vaccination in terms of the current form of vaccination and its effect on long COVID? You do refer to it in your paper. Yeah. I think it's one of the trickiest areas, isn't it? So the simple statement about vaccination is is that vaccination is vaccination and that the more people we have well boosted and well vaccinated and not going to get further infections or breakthrough infections, um, the less the chance of long COVID because the best way not to have long COVID is not to have COVID. But but obviously your question isn't really about that, is it? It's about vaccination as a way of modulating ongoing long COVID through boosting your immunity or helping to clear that reservoir of virus or whatever it is. And I'm sure you, you probably know the data better than I do, that when you do the kind of meta-analysis on all the studies that have been done, there's maybe, what, a third of people who get somewhat better after their vaccination. You'd imagine those may well be people with persistent virus sitting in a reservoir somewhere who get a chance to kind of boost their neutralizing antibodies tenfold and suddenly can clear, can clear it. You, know, you, can, you can picture that. But it's, it's clearly an answer rather than the answer. But it's, it's definitely in the mix. Because it also has one third of people remaining the same and one third of people getting worse. So It's confusing, unsatisfying literature to try and review. Yeah, Some people would like to try the Novavax because that's more desirable for people who've had a bad reaction to Pfizer or the other RNA vaccines. But it's just not available. I think Novavax is a, is a super vaccine. And when I talk about watching the regulatory space, one of the things where there's quite a lot of confusion in this country at the moment is where we're heading for our approval of um, vaccine doses. Because the second it was said that MHRA was only doing a sort of more limited offer for, for, for boosters for this autumn, but it would be possible, to, like flu, to get them privately. You know, people's eyebrows were raised. And as far as I know, there's been no progress or illumination on that. Um, so we're kind of none the wiser. One thing that I would like to pick up from from the paper and from what you said earlier yes. is from what we know so far, and the people that we have spoken to, there is currently no antiviral for dealing with herpes viruses. Is is that the case? Have I got that right? And, or is there anything that in that vein you think we could be trialling to try and eradicate this reactivation pathway. Yeah. So again, it's, it's one of the things where, where there's lots of hunches and interesting data, but obviously there's a whole family of different herpes viruses that infect humans and the ones we think about and worry about most often 
are um, EBV and Epstein Barr virus and CMV, and probably the one that people are keenest on in this context is EBV, which is similar but different to the debates that have gone on over the years in um, MECFS. So, you know, whatever else you think, there has been a kind of renaissance of interest in EBV modulation and immunotherapy, not least by those papers of the last couple of years, nailing down the biggest proof we've ever had that EBV is causal in multiple sclerosis. So that's given an enormous turbocharge to many decades of work on EBV vaccines, by which I mean not just preventative vaccines for children or whatever, but therapeutic vaccines to the rest of us on planet Earth who already have our EBV to see if it can um, can impact those pathways. So, so I think that there is a lot of stuff and a lot of momentum in that space. I think what's kind of hopeful, maybe just to end on, is that all this work that's going into long code for people like yourselves and the group in San Francisco and all over the world, is that... Um, there are sparks of, of some of the results that will help other chronic diseases and has given other chronic diseases kind of a bit more of a, a torch onto them, like MECFS. No, I think that's right. My kind of pushback and my rebuttal to all the pessimism, when you hear me saying, well, it's really complex, we haven't got the answer yet and don't know yet, and, and some of the long COVID clinics are just offering um, therapy and sort of behavioural readjustments and things, is that at the end of the day, I um, fly the flag for immunology, which I think has been one of the enormous successes of molecular medicine over the last 20 or 30 years in terms of all of the treatments that have come of age and all the, the difference it's made to people in the clinic with MS, with lupus, with rheumatoid arthritis, with almost every kind of cancer on the planet. So I'm saying there are goodies out there where we have a track record for making people better. Absolutely. Yeah, so I do retain that spark of optimism. <laughs> Might not look like it. <laughs> no, it does look like it. You always have a big smile on your face. It's just that it's been almost what, over three years now, so we're all kind of... Must, must feel terrible and slow. Yeah, but we do appreciate you and your colleagues and the people who really are flying the flag for us and our condition. I'll keep going to my meetings and keep knocking heads together. The paper itself, it's like a one-stop shop that you can go to if you know nothing about long COVID and immunology, or even just long COVID, and read about the favourite theories that people have put forward for a mechanism and symptomology. It is a very good roundup. It's very comprehensive. Mm. But when we pressed him slightly on some of the questions and where this might lead, I think he's read so much that his answer to most questions is that, who knows, maybe... Could be so many answers, right? We just don't know. We just don't know. No, yeah, yeah. It's a very Danny Altman phrase. And whilst he acknowledged at the end that it must be very frustrating and it has been going on for a long time, it doesn't really feel like we are moments away from a definitive anything. He says, you know, we need to have big trials. We need to be looking at big data. Which I totally agree with, yeah. Yeah, and that is a frustrating thing, isn't it, for us? Because you and I talk all the time and we speak to other long COVID sufferers and the majority of us, if there were big trials, we would be keen. But there's, there's not much 
basically. It doesn't seem to me like there's much that we can get involved in. But what my point is, long COVID patients would do it. No, it's always a joy to talk to Sonny. And he's he's so much more than just an immunologist. Yeah. An advocate for our long COVID patient group. Yeah, and that's what we need. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.